Job 34, Elihu's second speech. This has been really good for me because it's been a long time since I studied Job. And it's been very interesting to read Elihu especially with fresh eyes. He is a complex character. As I've mentioned, commentaries are really split on how to take Elihu. Uh, good or bad, is he no different than the friends? That would be one extreme. He's absolutely no different than the first three counselors. He provides the summary of their argument just before God speaks. All the way down to the end of the spectrum that I find myself arguing now, which is that, no, he's a true prophet of God. And you've got to look really closely at the words that he's using and what he's saying. And there's some subtle things you have to pick up on in the text. Otherwise, he does just appear to be like one of the friends. And I think a lot of commentaries try to put him somewhere in the middle where he's got some good things to say, but because he's young and impetuous and he's filled with anger, he says it in a, in a sinful way. And we have to allow that possibility. Can a true prophet of God, okay, let me ask a question in, in series. Can God speak through an unwilling, undeserving messenger? Yes, we know the story of Balaam. God can speak through a donkey. We also know the story of Jonah, who is a human donkey. And do you think that Jonah preached to the Ninevites with uh, an eagerness for them to receive and respond to the word of God faithfully? No, he's preaching against his will in Nineveh. He's, he's really hoping that they're going to ignore his sermon, but he knows that they won't because he knows the word of God is powerful and God is gracious to forgive. That's why Jonah's so worked up. So we have to allow the possibility that Elihu is kind of in that category where despite himself, God is speaking his word through his prophet. That's a kind of middle view. It's just not what I think is happening. The more I read Elihu, the more I'm on team Elihu. And maybe that's just because I spent the first half of my life in ministry being accused of being the young, impetuous, angry, you know, it's, it, um, speaker of God's word. Um, and so I have sympathy for the insults that he's getting here, that it's not what he says, it's how he says it. It's his, it's his, his tone. But I think his tone's okay, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So his second speech starts in chapter 34, similar to the first speech. And the theme of this is that Job is going to have to learn how to humble himself before God in all situations. Job was able to humble himself before God in seasons of plenty. Job handled wealth and prosperity well. And we should give him credit for that because that is difficult. The Bible tells us it is not an easy thing to honor God in our success. And Job has done that. Job, even remember at the beginning when he's throwing birthday parties for his children, he's making sacrifices on their behalf in case there's sins that he doesn't know about. Job is faithful before God in times of plenty. But now he's in an absolutely extreme time of want. And he said many of the right things, and he's had moments of faithfulness and of clarity. But as the book grinds on, and as his argument grinds on, and as he listens to this bad advice from his counselors, and the fact that their argument is wrong, 
he begins to conflate their false worldview with God's worldview and says that God is in the wrong, as in the wrong as they are. And that's what Elihu cannot bear. And so he's going to try to teach Job to learn, this is Christopher Ashe's phrase, to bow in humble obedience before the God whom he cannot by nature worship perfectly. And in this speech, Elihu has two audiences. We mentioned that a little bit in the first speech, that he's speaking to Job, but he also, the counselors, the previous friends, and maybe some others are, are there listening. Here he makes that explicit in the text, that the first section, verses 2 through 15, all of the yous, all of the second person words are plural. He's speaking to a group of people. He's speaking to those who are gathered around Job. And then starting in verse 16, he turns to Job, and you can sort of see the cue in the text that he's starting a new speech, and all the yous become singular, and he's going to speak directly to Job from verse 16 on. And so first we have his speech to uh, a a larger audience. And and again, let me say, this is one of these tough ones where obviously I'm going to be teaching from my understanding of the text, from my perspective of what I think makes the most sense, understanding God's word here. It's a little bit different from even the book we're using with Christopher Ashe. Last speech, Elihu's first speech especially, I thought Derek Thomas had a better take on it than Christopher Ashe did. In the second speech, it's just the opposite. (laughs) I'll follow pretty closely with Christopher Ashe because I think Derek Thomas, I I don't agree with his reading of it. Derek Thomas says, Elihu's speech is very different from his first one. All compassion is gone. This is cold analytical logic. The first speech closed with a note of joy. This one closes in doom. This comes from Elihu's love of his own rhetoric and perhaps a little pride. I don't think that's right at all. Um, and I'll make that argument from the text, and it will be up for you to, to decide, uh, how, you know, and the Holy Spirit to give us all illumination on this. But I don't think that's what's happening at all. Can you remind us, forgive me, the difference between their views in the first speech? Chris, uh, uh, Derek Thomas was very compassionate toward him in the first speech calls him a true prophet who claims to be speaking for God. Ash does not go that far. Ash ties his first speech a lot more closely to the counselors, that he uh, he is affirming the system, but standing with Job that the system does not apply to Job in this case. I shouldn't say affirming the system. That the factual statements that the counselors made, the ones that when we read it, we said these are true from scripture. Elihu affirms those, but he takes the position we'd taken up till then that they don't apply to Job in this situation. And that's why he's able to be more sympathetic with Elihu. Elihu is not condemning uh, Job's point of view in the first speech, according to Derek Thomas, which I agree he then says that Elihu makes this pretty massive shift in the second one. Chris Ash is going to give a little more consistent Elihu between the speeches. I just don't think Ash goes far enough in the fact that, no, this is, this is, I want to be careful that it's not an imperfect speech. It's important to Ash that he say, 
that Elihu says things that are true and says things that are not true. He doesn't have all the information. He makes some mistakes. I'm not willing to go that far. I don't think that's correct. I think, I think Elihu goes as far as God has given him to go. I think some of the statements that Ash interprets as being incorrect, and certainly Thomas interprets it as being incorrect, um, they're missing who Elihu is saying those to. So you both, so that view is, he is, Elihu is actually a prophet of God, so what he is saying is actually true and cannot be wrong. Correct. Ash is saying, Ash, lots of good with some error. Thomas, first speech, prophet, true prophet. Second speech, self-indulgent. If I had to pick between the two, I would take this one because the argument I would make is that uh, Elihu uses language in the first speech where he says the source of his ultimate authority is God, that God is saying these things. And in the second speech, he starts with sort of a, an ode to the wisdom tradition and how wise he is within that tradition. And so you could say, okay, the distinction that Scripture is making is when a prophet speaks in God's wisdom versus when a man speaks in his own wisdom. And sometimes that can come from the same human being. And that point is certainly true. It's true enough even for preachers today. I can stand in the pulpit and I can preach something to you. This, this is what Scripture says. Otherwise, I would fear the lightning that's about to come. I can preach something to you that is not in Scripture that is as perfect as God's Word. I can also say a whole bunch of stuff that is just from me. And the Holy Spirit and you discerning what is in accord with Scripture is how you know which is which. It's not automatically God's Word because I said it. But I can say God's Word. Even words beyond what are exactly on the pages of this Bible. So, so Ash's view actually it could is a reasonable view. It's They're not, all reasonable views. Yeah, sorry, I should have said that. Like, I'm not dealing with bad commentaries here. Right. Ash's view is reasonable. That Job is that. Sorry, that uh, Elihu is the best of the friends. He has his view aligns with you, what we what you just said about you in the pulpit, which is he what he's saying that is true is God's word, but he could also speak error, and it would be up to the Holy Spirit to discern. Uh huh. Changes with context, and then my view would be: this is a true prophet of God. You don't have examples in the Old Testament of true prophets of God who are in the same category as, as preachers. Because how would you know that you're not supposed to stone him? False prophets are to be stoned. So if Elihu is claiming to be a true prophet, but has some error the way I, Paul the preacher, have some error, they were still supposed to stone him. So I, I, that's the limitation for me is the, the practical reality. <laughs> he claims that in the text? I, that was my argument last week was uh, he, he claims he is speaking for God. And I buy the argument because the points that he is making are exactly the points that God will pick up in his speech and illuminate further. God does speak. It is essential that God speaks. 
We need to hear it, even though we don't like some of the means that he uses to hear it. Suffering is one of those means. It does not challenge the justice of God, which is where we're going to get in this one. I don't look at any of the main points Elihu makes and say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Now, let's, let's dig into it. And we'll see some examples. Um, all right, so he's going to speak to the wider audience first. This is, this is 1 through 15. Um, Andrew, will you read 1 through 4? Yes. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear test words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. So Thomas, this is a good example. Thomas says, Elihu is claiming the skills of a gourmet chef. That's the point of the food analogy, is Elihu saying, I'm really good with these words. You taste and see how true what I say is. But I, I think, and I say this with full recognition that Derek Thomas is a better, more knowledgeable scholar than I'll ever be, but all of us can be wrong. I think he's missing out on the fact that Job used the same analogy earlier in one of his own speeches, that wisdom was like food that you could taste and see if it was good or bad, right or wrong. And I think all Elihu's doing is repeating that back. Okay, Job, you've told people to taste the dish that you've made. Now I'm going to ask them to taste the dish that I'm making. And let's see. Let's see which one holds to be more true. And so he's, he's speaking to... Uh, that was chapter 12 where Job used that for the record. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food. And so Elihu's saying, okay, let's do that. Let's have the palate taste food. See what these arguments taste like. Um, and so the, the, the critical issue here is going to be the justice and the goodness of God. Job is claiming Normally implicitly, but occasionally explicitly, and Elihu will call those out. Job is claiming that his circumstances call into question the justice and the goodness of God. And Elihu's going to make the argument, no, those are not on trial. And let me give you the case for why. So then... We get into the next part. Noah, can you read 5 through 9? For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. So, again, this, I'm sorry to add confusion to this, but I just want to be really transparent. Derek Thomas looks word for word at that section of verses and says, you cannot find anywhere in Job where Job said exactly that. Therefore, Elihu is being unfair. He is misquoting Job. I don't agree. I agree with Christopher Ash that Elihu is summarizing multiple things that Job has said on multiple occasions throughout the book. Job has said he is in the right, that he has justice on his side. He said it over and over and over again. Daphne, will you go to chapter 10, verse 15? 
Sally, will you go to chapter 13, verse 18? Read 10, 15. If I am guilty, woe to me. If I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look upon my affliction. Sally, 13, 18. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. So, Elihu's summary is, Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, God declares me a liar. Although I am guiltless, he inflicts his incurable wound. I don't think there's any misrepresentation there. I think that's a reasonable summary of the speeches that Job has been making when, with regards to God's, uh, that, that Job himself is in the right. Second, this is the end of verse 5. He protests that God has denied him justice. This is exactly what Job has said. If you go back to chapter 27 and verse 2, he says, As God lives, who has taken away my right? It's exactly what Job has said that God has done. Third, this is the beginning of verse 6. Job says that God is calling him a liar. By the suffering that makes Job look guilty, when Job says, I'm innocent, and people contrast the innocence and the suffering, Job says, God's calling me a liar. Again, it's not, he's not quoting him the way you would hope a newspaper journalist would quote somebody. He is summarizing the real problems that have crept into Job's case along the way. And then the fourth one, the end of verse 6, he feels his wound is incurable. And there is therefore no hope for him. And this is the, this is the most startling of all accusations. And Job will repent specifically of this type of talk. Because what Job is implicitly saying about God is that he is not good. If this is incurable, if this injustice is the last word on the situation, God is not good. And that's not the side you want to be on, <laughs> is that argument. So I, I agree with Ash. The perspective I just gave you on that paragraph, Christopher Ash agrees with. Derek Thomas does not. And that's why their view on this second speech is going to be very different. What happens at the beginning? Is Elihu puffed up in his own wisdom and misquoting Job? Or is Elihu making a generalized case extracting out the points that Job has made in multiple of his speeches. Just a reminder on something earlier from this series, the idea of blameless versus guiltless. Um, if somebody look at the verses from chapter 10 and 13 and say, Job is just saying he's blameless rather than guiltless. Not, not a helpful distinction. In, well, it's a helpful distinction for us to bring into Job. It's not a helpful distinction for us to make within Job himself. Job is not claiming sinless perfection anywhere in this book. He uses those words to describe the same things, which is not sinless perfection, 
but obedience before God. So when we want to make distinctions, we want to make the distinction between somebody who's claiming sinless perfection, Jesus Christ, and somebody in the, uh, like a prophet, like Job, you think about in all the Psalms, who may ascend the hell of the Lord, who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, one of my most frustrating experiences as a worshiper is when the worship leader uses that as the call to worship and then tells me I can't do it. <laughs> and no, 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 I'm not telling you you can't do it. I'm just telling you that Jesus, you do it. Like, well, then Jesus should go up and worship. I can bring clean hands and a pure heart before the Lord through repentance. But it's not like I need Jesus to go worship in my place. I have an invite into the courts of God. So we want that distinction. Job isn't making it between those two words. Okay. Blameless and guiltless do not mean different things in Job in this context. Okay. And he'll use more words than just those two. He'll bring a lot of words into that mix. Is he still summarizing in 7 and 8 where he, because he seems to then take some shots at Job where he says, who drinks up scoffing like water who travels in company with evil leaders and walks with wicked men. So this is his accusation against Job. And I would say, um, let, let me read a paragraph from Ash that I think is helpful. Unlike the comforters, and this is important because the question Jake asked is going to determine kind of which of these interpretations uh, controls for you. I'm going to go with Ash. He says, unlike the comforters, who accuse Job of secret sins for which they have no evidence. Elihu focuses on the public evidence of the things that Job has said. The accusations of verses 7 through 9 are on the basis of Job's own words. Elihu is horrified by these things and accuses Job of drinking up scoffing like water. The, the metaphor is that he would be scoffing at the idea that God is good and just. That he's making a mockery, that, that he thinks his situation makes a mockery of the idea that God is good and just. And so he scoffs at it. Um, he makes this because he has believed, he's drunk in these views from others and believed their lies as Eve believed the snake's lie in the garden. In 1516, Eliphaz had accused Job of drinking in injustice like water. But whereas Eliphaz accused Job of making injustice his diet, Elihu accuses him of making mockery of God his diet. The former accusation is untrue, but Elihu's is true. How do we know it's true? Job will admit to it later. This, this will come up in Job's repentance. So it's, it's really subtle what the difference between Eliphaz and Elihu are accusing Job of and why one is right and one is wrong. But I think the difference is there. I think, it's, I think there's enough evidence in the text. Elihu is not saying that Job himself is wicked and the proof is that he's suffering. Elihu is saying that Job is talking the way the wicked talk. When he speaks of his suffering, that's a very different accusation. And it will come to fruition when we see this is what God 
was trying to teach Job all along, not the only thing God was doing, not even the most important thing God was doing. The most important thing is defending his own glory in the heavenly council. Satan's accusation is not right. But there's a purpose in this for Job too. It's to draw out the sin that Job did not know was there. Job knew how to be godly in seasons of plenty. Turns out Job did not know how to be godly in seasons of suffering and of want. And God's going to draw that sin out of him through suffering so that it can be exposed to the disinfectant that is the light of day and so that there can be forgiveness, repentance, and restoration. And in Job, you get all of those. (laughs) You actually get to see the restoration, which you don't uh, always get to see in uh, these biblical events. So this is a lie whose central accusation against Job, that he is speaking as the wicked speak with regards to his suffering in this situation. And Ash says this is a moment where we really need to stop and, and ask ourselves about Elihu's tone. Because critics of Elihu say that he's harsh and particularly unfeeling in this speech. That he, like the friends who came before, doesn't understand Job's predicament. I think the big difference between that point of view and what Elihu's really saying is whether you're, appro- whether you're evaluating the situation with a man-centered lens or a God-centered lens. It's, it's the same way that you would view Elihu's anger. It is certainly the case that the vast majority of the anger that we express outwardly to others is sinful. We're not good maintainers of anger. We're not good at that. So I share your frustration and concern with the person who always thinks that their anger is righteous anger. They're wrong some massive percentage of the time. But it is equally wrong to disbelieve in human righteous anger. To, to, to say that humans cannot practice anger without sin is unbiblical. Jesus, temple, tables. So you, you have to at least, well, yeah, but he was God. Well, okay, so if you want to deny the full humanity of Jesus Christ, let's have another discussion about why you're not a Christian. But... He really was fully human, you guys. And in his humanity, he flips over a table, chases off moneylenders. He, like, Jesus gets mad at some folks. When he starts threatening people that they should have a millstone put around their neck and drop, like, he's not pleased with these people. So it is possible, and it's possible for humans who are not also fully God. <laughs> We're not good at it. But it is possible. I, I think that's what Elihu is doing here. I think one way, and I'll, I'll use Ash's words for this because I think they give good clarity. But I think one way to make the distinction of how we're viewing this is, are you seeing Elihu as an angry indignant, you didn't listen to me, you stupid human, I'm the best, wisest of the humans, listen to my words, not your words. 
Or is Elihu filled with overwhelming passion for the honor of God? If someone said to you, your God is not good, how should you feel? Tables. <laughs> Skewering people in tents is what I think. <laughs> oh, that's an example. <laughs> How we carry out that anger should be guided by some biblical principles as well. But we should be angry. What greater lie could be told? What greater offense? To the God who so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but receive everlasting life. What is more offensive than to say to that God, you're not good? And that's what Job is saying. You're not good. I think Elihu's allowed to be pretty worked up about that. So tie that in with what you, I think you've made a point very well throughout this about uh, when we go to someone who is suffering mm-hmm. and we go to them in the context of let, you know, we don't have to attack the errors that they're necessarily saying right away in that moment, right? Like, and, and absolutely not. I'm going to speak in absolutes, though you should trust the spirit that if the situation you're in is an exception to my absolute. You should never lead with theological answers in a pain conversation. Theological answers are responses. They are not leading. So when you're standing with the person whose child has just died, do not lead with a theological answer. God is good. Because if I'm there, I'll kick you. I mean, I've told you guys a story before. The, the First Baptist, or First Baptist, First Press Columbia, and uh, uh, an elder yelling at his family to cross the street to get in the car after church because he wants to leave and he's in a hurry. And his wife steps out in front of the car and is killed. And standing in the hospital, one of the men in the church, outside the hotel room, or the hospital room where she's just died, says, we know that all things work for good. It's like, I can't imagine a worse context in which to say something that is true 100% of the time. So don't, don't lead with a theological answer. They should be responses. And then the best kinds of responses in a moment of pain are, one, silence. Because you've got to ask yourself, Am I about to disagree with the mind of faith or the heart of pain? You don't need to disagree with the heart of pain. The heart of pain says all kinds of crazy stuff. Haven't you hit your hand with a hammer? Haven't you stubbed your toe on the corner of the bed? Is that when theological truth comes spewing <laughs> forth from your mouth? The most real I've ever done. Oh, it's real. <laughs> no, so if somebody's speaking out of the heart of pain, just let them be. Be present. Uh, touch people who want to be touched and don't touch people who don't want to be touched. Right? But be present. If they say something that you, upon reflection, really do think is the mind of faith speaking, they make a theological claim about God that is not true. God would have stopped it if he could. Now what are you going to do? 
And the best responses, besides silence, are questions. Just ask people, what would it look like for God to love you right now? Just see what they say. Uh, that would be my advice. Don't lead with theological statements 99.99% of the time. Um, yeah. So Elihu's accusation is consistent with his anger. I just don't think you can take seriously the goodness of God and not be really angry in this situation. And notice what he does with his anger. What he does with his anger is quote Job's argument truthfully, make argue, like, direct confrontation with Job about where this, what this sin is suggesting. You sound like one of these evil people and calls Job to repentance. He doesn't punch Job in the face. He doesn't write him off forever. He doesn't, the way his anger is manifested is all good Bible stuff. So I think he's on pretty solid ground here. Overwhelming passion for the honor of God is the phrase Ash uses. And I just wonder what it would be like to feel that. Because I don't think that's a common feeling for us. Overwhelming passion for the honor of God. Verse 10 on, Elihu starts to examine uh, uh, sorry, having examined Job's position, Elihu will move on to making his own, which is going to include reaffirming the doctrine of just judgment. Dale, will you read 10 through 15? So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil. From the Almighty to He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, but the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention, he withdrew his spirit and breath. All mankind would perish together, and man would return to the dust. A lot similar here in what the earlier comforters said when they affirmed the just judgment of God. But notice that Elihu's argument is broader. The comforters were very narrowly focused on immediate justice, immediate punishment for sinners, immediate reward for those who do good, very narrowly focused. Elihu zooms out that God is a good and fair governor of the world in every respect, that the zoomed out comprehensive view of how God interacts with his universe and what will be true in the finality of things is just. And the reason for that, and this is an amazing tie-in with the Isaiah passage in the sermon, is that God is God. That's verses 12 through 15, that God is God. It is unthinkable that Job's accusation about God could be true because what Job describes is not God. You think about a hired hand versus a shepherd. The New Testament uses that distinction as how much can a hired hand care? They can care some, but they're hired hands. They can't care as much as the shepherd can care. Make a similar analogy zoomed out to God. 
Think about the deities of the ancient Near East world. I know that's something you think about and study regularly. All of these gods had delegated authority. Everything Baal was in charge of had been delegated to him. He's a hired hand. Think about, you know, the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods better. They're all delegated an area of responsibility, right? Even Zeus, who you think is this ultimate. No, Zeus is limited in this finite. They're all hired hands. And Elias says, God's governance of the world is not delegated to him. He is the supreme governor of the world. And if God is not just, there is no such thing as justice. Because God is, he is just. Otherwise, there's no such thing as justice. And we are in a totally opposite position. So let me read Ash. He says, we are utterly dependent on him. And he is not one whit dependent upon us. To challenge the justice of his rule is to challenge his person. And that is a very foolish and dangerous thing to do. By challenging the goodness and justice of the sovereign God, Job is challenging the very being of God. And that's why the posture of humility is so critical in our suffering. Job had that humility in his season of plenty. He knew every good gift came from above. He knew to have a grateful heart. He knew that there could be secret and hidden sins that needed confession. He knew in seasons of plenty that he ought to have a humble heart. But now in his suffering, His heart's not so humble anymore. So much so that he's willing to look at his circumstances and challenge the goodness and justice of God. Now, as an instinct and a cry of pain, I hope we can sympathize. I hope we get that. When you're in the heart of that suffering, don't come alongside me and tell me this is good. But Elihu's not arguing with a heart of suffering. He's arguing with a mind of faith where Job has continued and continued and continued to make out loud and in public accusations about God that are not true, that call into question the goodness and justice of God, and Elihu won't stand for it. Does this make... Sounds terrible, I don't know what but does this make Satan partially right? It's an interesting question because I I skipped over the quote, but Ash, in the previous section, when he's listing out the sort of four summary points of Job's argument, let's see if I can find that quote. When we get to the fourth point, he says, finally, this is back to verse 6b, he feels his wound is incurable and there is no hope for him. Although he will finally repent of this, at this point Job has believed the primal lie of the Satan, that God is not good, but a cruel and evil tormentor. The Satan has masqueraded as God and persuaded Job of this. 
So it doesn't mean that, that, Job, that Satan is right in his specific accusation that brought this about, which was that the only reason Job loves God is because he has good stuff. And Job will be vindicated in the end when God speaks to him and he turns to God in repentance and says, you're, you're God either way and you're worthy of my devotion either way. So Satan's wrong on that point. But Satan, masquerading as God, bringing all of this chaos into Job's life, has gotten Job confused about who's God. It's a powerful pain. Is a, when we call it a megaphone, it is a powerful effect. I mean, think about how important that is when we're talking to people who are saying theologically incorrect stuff and who believe theologically incorrect stuff. Isn't it your experience that the vast majority of the time that you're talking to a believer with crazy theology, it's that they've believed more from their experience and particularly pain than they've believed from Scripture. Maybe they've been exposed more to their experience and pain than to Scripture because most preaching and teaching is bad. Um, How sympathetic should we be with people who believe wrong and crazy stuff? How sympathetic should we be with one another when we momentarily are believing wrong and crazy stuff? Our pain is spoken so loudly to us. And so quieting that down so that Scripture can speak more loudly is completely doable by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not easy. And it's not natural apart from regeneration. It just won't happen. So we should have a a great deal of, of sympathy and compassion on people who are in this position. But again, I would point you to what that sympathy and compassion can look like because it can start out quiet ministry of presence, asking probing questions, trying to get people to the right place. But somewhere on that spectrum, when there's resistance, it must also include what Elihu's doing here. Um, One of the things that Dale talks about a lot when you talk about helping people is repeating their own words back to them. Isn't that what Elihu's doing here? He's repeating back to Job what Job said and saying, Job, what's the implication of that? If that's true, what does that mean? What means God is not God? That, that, that may be the most loving thing you ever do. Again, not, not in the moment standing at the graveside, but at some point in time, if you can't say to someone that you're comforting and trying to move back toward Christ through their pain, if that's true, is God still God? That's an important thing to be confronted with because the answer here for Job is no. If Job's accusation is true, God is not God. Not just God isn't good, there is no God. There is no good. Those are, this, is, this is weighty and important stuff. Then he turns in verse 16 and he speaks to Job. So all that previous stuff, he's really just laying out the stakes for the audience. This is how important this is. These are the accusations Job is, and yes, Job is a part of that audience. He's not speaking away from Job, but he's speaking all, again, all the yous are plurals. Every single second person pronoun in all the verses we've just read are plural. Well, I shouldn't say every single because there's a couple that are, Job said this, but now 
He's going to turn to Job and all the verbs are going to become singular. Um, and Noah, will you read six? Let's see where to stop. Let's do 16 to 25. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regard the rich more than the poor? For they are all work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night and they are crushed. All right, so the big theme of this part of the speech, he turns to Job and says, what you are saying is wrong because God does God does judge justly. He is God. The godness of God makes your accusation impossible. And then he's going to give some specific details of how God judges what God's justice looks like. First, verses 18 and 19. He, he judges without partiality. God doesn't play favorites. God is not persuaded by a king or a prince who is wrong versus a peasant who is wrong. He's persuaded by rightness and wrongness. It's not partiality. Second, God's judgment is certain. This is verse 20. Again, this is just an amazing tie-in because this is exactly what Isaiah says in the passage we're going to read today. We do not operate with all the information. Every single thing we decide and think and plan is contingent. It's contingent on what we know, on whether what we know is accurate. It's contingent on other things that may happen. God operates with certainty in all things. And the example that he gives at midnight is, is the suddenness of death. So you're supposed to do a little somewhat humorous thought experiment here. If God were to say, you know, you're, everybody's days are numbered and today's the day for Karen. And at midnight in her bed, God takes Karen. And then God said, oh, I look at my day planner wrong. It wasn't Karen's day. Oh no, <laughs> can't happen. The fact that God can operate swiftly, suddenly, and permanently requires that God operate with certainty. God does not act with any uncertainty. Tied into that, verse 21, is that he does so because he has perfect knowledge. He knows all things and he knows them perfectly. His eyes know all the steps of all the people. And scripture ties these things together. Humans, church-going humans, good, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, church-going humans, we still 
want to rip these concepts apart and affirm one that God has perfect knowledge of the future and not the other that God is actually sovereign Lord who has declared and written the future from all eternity. Scripture always ta- not always scripture consistently talks about them together as he does here. This perfect knowledge. It's not just God's omnipotence that God can react to everything that's going to happen because he's more powerful. It's that God is omniscient. The story is written from all eternity. Fourthly, he will judge publicly, verse 26, in a place for all to see. This is certainly consistent with the prophets and with the New Testament and with the book of Revelation that all eyes will behold his justice. All the confusion, all the arguments that can be made right now about the way that God is not fair, there will come a day where we stand there and every eye will behold the righteous judge on the throne. He will make his judgments and not one single person will say, you got it wrong. Even those who are condemned will know that God is right. So it's a powerful thing to think. The whole universe will see his justice. And then the climax of Elihu's case for God's justice is verses 29 and 30. Jake, can you read those? When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man? That a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. When God is quiet, when we do not see justice being meted out immediately, the way the counselors say, we are wrong to condemn God for injustice. The answer is not that this is eternally just. The answer is you don't have the whole story yet. The answer is wait. And a lot of times we are in these moments of God's silence and we are accusing God of injustice. He hasn't said anything. He has not made a final declaration on the situation. And we are accusing him of injustice. Verse 31, Ash says, is not asking a theoretical question. It is a definite suggestion. This is what, if you're going to get it right in your head, Job, you're going to have to listen and remember who God is. Who God is, is our certainty of how things will be in the end. How things are right now is the worst predictor we could ever imagine of how things will be in the end. But we look at how things are right now and we say, God is not good. God is not just. And Elihu has no patience for that. (laughs) He had actually plenty of patience for that. His patience has run out. 